Today's scripture reading is James chapter 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're almost um, at the end now of this uh, sermon series that we've been doing on, on the letter of James, learning what the brother of Jesus himself has to teach the scattered church, and that's, that's all of us, the scattered church right now, about Christian community and Christian maturity. And I love, um, so Eugene Peterson, uh, the late, great Eugene Peterson, Presbyterian minister and author, and probably most famous for uh, being the translator of, of the message version of the Bible, which the version I have has a um, recommendation of it from the m- musician Stu G. Who is Stu G? Does anyone know? But it's like, this, I love the message, Stu G, musician, which is like, what a great endorsement from Stu G. But anyways, Stu G loves it. I love it too. And what makes the message, even if you don't, you know, prefer that, the message translation paraphrase of the Bible, his Peterson's short introductions to each and every book of the Bible make it an invaluable resource in and of itself. He just breaks it down in a few short paragraphs um, what each and every book of Scripture is about. And And what he says about James, I think, is wonderful, and I just want to share a little snippet of it, because I think it prepares us to hear what James has this morning. And so here's what Peterson says when he's introducing James. He says, when Christian believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. Outsiders on observing this conclude that there is nothing to the religion business except perhaps business, and dishonest business at that. Insiders see it differently. Just as a hospital collects the sick under one roof and labels them as such, the church collects sinners. So Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. They are rather places where human misbehavior is brought out into the open, faced, and dealt with. That's a good word for us, and it's helpful to keep in mind when we read our passage today, because James is delivering to the church, to the people who are reading this, some harsh words, some very strong words, much stronger words than I would ever feel comfortable preaching to my own congregation. I mean, uh, uh, let's be honest. It's one thing to go out there, and as a preacher, you can condemn sort of the wrong kind of Christians, the wrong kind of churches. It's easy for me. Any, any, any hack can get up there and do that. But it's another thing entirely to be this blunt to your own people. 
But James, he's a doctor. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a spiritual doctor, and he sees that his church needs some hard medicine because they've been infected with a cultural sickness that, if left untreated, could prove deadly. And so it's this morning we're going to look at what is the sickness James is talking about? What is the sickness that has him so bothered? And then what's the cure? So what's the sickness? Now, we know that James, he means serious business, and we know because kind of we can divide our passage into two sections based on, on these words that he says, come now you, says it twice, both sections, come now you, come now you. And when an author in ancient rhetoric used that construction, the audience knew that he was really about to let somebody have it. It's like, uh, you know, when you know when your parents are mad at you, right, when they use your full name, you know, so David Paul Berge, you know you're in trouble, or... Peter Olaf Berge, you better listen. Or Kyle David Berge, I'm looking at you. They know. They know they're here. They're there. They're, they know. They, their eyes perked up because they knew uh, there was trouble coming in their way. But you're not in trouble, kids. It's just an illustration. Don't worry. Not, not for, I'll find out later maybe what you're in trouble for. But, so you know this is serious business. Come now, you. Come now, you. James is not playing around. But when we read what follows, it can actually be a little bit confusing about what has James so exercised at this moment, because it seems like what he's condemning is just some basic strategic planning. He says, come on, you who say you're going to go to such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. That's a basic business plan. What, 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 what problem could James possibly have? What could be, you know, unchristian about coming up with a strategic plan for your business? I mean, anyone who's ever started any kind of business or any endeavor, you at least start out with some sort of plan, you know, where you're going to do it, what you're going to do, how much money you need to do it. Um, you know, I mean, like, like, like you need a semblance of a plan to start and do anything. You know, we're a congregation. We got lots of entrepreneurs in this congregation too. Lots of people who have started out and said, I need a plan. I'm going to start this business. I need something. And even in our church leadership, you know, we do strategic planning. We think, well, okay, where does God want us to be in a year, in five years, in, 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 in ten years? So what's wrong? What's wrong with thinking about tomorrow? I mean, didn't Fleetwood Mac say it and sing it best when they said, don't stop thinking about tomorrow? Erin Hupp's shaking her head. She's very disturbed by this. But don't stop because it'll be soon be here. They sang that. Great Rumors, one of the great albums, truly, of all time. But that's another sermon. Uh, no, it's not. We're, we will not preach a whole sermon on, on Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. But they said, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. Don't look back. So what is the problem? What's the problem with thinking about tomorrow? So what he's condemning them, it's not condemning. It, it's not planning ahead per se. If we look at verse 16, we kind of see the key phrase that I think captures it all. He says, as it is. You boast in your arrogance. And so the sickness that, that James sees that has infected people in the church, it's arrogance. It's, it's an arrogance. And it's an arrogance that's manifested itself, a spiritual arrogance that's manifested itself in three different ways. Arrogance about foreknowledge, arrogance about control, and then also arrogance associated with wealth. That's the sickness that James sees that's infected the church, and he needs to take it head on. And it's not just arrogance. It's, he says it's boastful arrogance. And that word boasting in the Bible, whenever we see it, boasting is, is, is associated with war and battle. It's smack talk. If you've ever watched, you know, people promoting a fight, boxing could be MMA, what do they do? They sit down and the guys boast. 
they boast. They, they, talk, they talk smack. And boasting is building yourself up. It's talking about how you're going to pummel this other person. They don't stand a chance, so they might as well run away while they have the chance. That's what boasting is. It, 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 it's, it's self-confidence to the extreme. It is um, building yourself up and trying to intimidate and tear others down. And so whatever you boast in, when you're boasting about something, you know, you're feeling really good, really good about it. Whatever you boast in, that's what gives you the confidence to face the battles of life. And so what James sees in the church, which is antithetical to Christian maturity, it's antithetical to Christian maturity, is boasting born of these three kinds of arrogance. And when you think about arrogance, what is arrogance? It's, it's, it's this inflated sense of our own importance of our own intelligence, of our own abilities and capabilities and powers and perspective. And, and this sermon goes with last week's because last week we talked about spiritual pride versus spiritual humility. But wherever we see spiritual pride, that's a besetting sin. Wherever we see spiritual pride, it's going to manifest itself in spiritual arrogance. Spiritual arrogance about things like the future, things like our control, things like our wealth that can insulate us from reality. And so first things first, what is the arrogance of, of foreknowledge? James says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town, spend a year there, make a profit. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So what he's addressing here is the arrogance that comes from when we live as if tomorrow is just something that's guaranteed. When we boast in our own ability to foresee what's going to happen. And let's be honest, all of us live from some kind of script that we have in our heads about the future. How the future is supposed to go. There's kind of a meta script that maybe we start with for our lives. Okay, this is the the big picture, so I'm going to grow up and go to a good school and get a good job and live in a good town or a good house. And I'm going to meet someone great. I'm going to have these great friends. I'm going to have a great family. I'm going to have a great career. I'm going to have all these great experiences. You know, we have the script. That's how life is, is supposed to go. But then even in our own small ways, we have our own specific scripts about how things are supposed to go, how our plans are supposed to unfold, how our lives and our relationships are supposed to unfold. You know, we think we know what's going to happen. And, and whatever our script is, at least always it starts as a happy script. It's a comedy, not a tragedy. And we have our smaller scripts about how each day is supposed to go even, how each week, how each month, how each season is supposed to go. And then closely related to that is this arrogance of of control, this sense that not only can we see what's coming down the road, but we have an inordinate ability to influence what's going to happen. We can predict, we can model, we can anticipate, and we can forecast so we can shape events so that whatever we want to see happen will happen. And so is there a a more predominant myth in our culture than our ability to know and control the future? We build our lives on that myth. We, We build our own sense of selves on that myth. We're the masters of our fate, right? The future is ours. The future is whatever we make it. And that's what the winners, that's what winners in our world believe. But I do hope that if 2020 has taught us anything Right? It's how little knowledge and control we actually do have. How much of that is just an illusion. How little we do know. How little we do control. Because who predicted 
a pandemic. I know people were warning, you know, Bill Gates, we can go back and look. He was saying, we got to be ready, we got to be ready. But we always heard that, right? It was chicken little. Of course, the sky is eventually going to fall. Of course, we need to be ready for that. But it never happened. Never happened. And, and who could have predicted that, that a death like George Floyd's, I mean, not even two miles from here, was going to spark this, this global protest movement and unrest across our country? I was talking to uh, Amy, my wife, the other day, and, and she does this wonderful thing where she puts together these photo books for our family that kind of catalog each and every year. Um, and it's a wonderful keepsake to have for our family. She said, you know, looking at the photos she's doing, working on the one for 2019, and she said, it's hard to look at those photos because they are a reminder of, in the very recent past, that there was such a thing as normal life. Like, it was, it was just a few months ago that we had that, and now we don't anymore. And I, and I think back, you know, what were you doing a year ago? We were actually just getting ready to go to Sisyphus Brewing to launch the Elevate campaign. And, uh, and you know, we were, I was getting ready in a week to run the Twin Cities Marathon, and it was, it was, so, ex- it was so exciting. It was so exciting. We were getting ready to take our annual trip up to the North Shore and stay in the cabins that we always stay in. Well, that's all gone. That's all gone. And so the problem with the kind of arrogance that James is talking about, the sense that we know the future, we can control the future, is is that it's just another way of putting ourselves in the place of God. Because when we think about who knows the future and who holds and controls the future, Who's ultimately in control? Who is that? Who are we describing when we talk about that? God himself. And when we put ourselves in God's place, we know we see that from the beginning, the first chapters of the Bible. When we put ourselves in God's place, that's when bad things start to happen. So James talks about that kind of arrogance. It's a sickness. But then he also talks, and he has very harsh words, about the arrogance that accompanies wealth. You know, this is always a sticky question of who is wealthy I mean, in a certain sense, uh, all of us are in this room. Even if you're poor in America, you're richer than probably 90% of the people in the world and probably 99.9% of of human beings who have ever existed. But the more wealth we have, the more it feeds the arrogant notion that we don't need God. Uh, A a small illustration of this, but I was interviewing a a guy named Peter Moskos a month ago for my podcast, like trees walking. Um, and uh, Peter is a professor at the John Jage College of Criminal Justice. That's part of the City University of New York. And uh, so we were talking about, you know, policing and police reform and violence and, and crime reduction. And so, um, you know, Peter is not a, a person of faith. So, you know, when he's talking to me, though, he's talking about solutions to this. And he says, you know, and churches are a part of the solution as well. I mean, in terms of uh, community institutions that work to reduce crime and violence and are a part of the solution that goes along with some of this stuff. And, and he said, but you know, I, he admitted he was just sort of throwing me a bone because he knew I was a pastor. But he's like, you know, he said, I guess I'm in kind of a privileged position because I don't need faith. He can get along just fine in his life without God. And I think that's just a simple illustration of um, the arrogance of wealth. And Peter's not an arrogant person. You know, I'm not calling him, him arrogant, but that arrogance that accompanies wealth that says, well, you know what? Faith for thee, but not for me. You know, you need that for your community, but I can get a, a kind of, I, 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 that doesn't influence me or impact me in the same way. It, it, it can kind of insulate us from the cries of the poor, from the plight of the poor, thinking that, that their solution is not the same as the solution for me. It can insulate us from the cries of the poor. Cries which James tells us, those are prayers 
that reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. And so our wealth is something that can insulate us from those cries. It it plugs our ears. It hardens our hearts. It allows us to distance ourselves from the problems of injustice and the solutions to injustice. And we know that these are things that are very, very close to God's own heart. And so woe to us that our wealth could ever make us so arrogant that we'd ever entertain the notion that God is just an optional add-on extra to an otherwise fulfilling life. And woe to us that our wealth would ever separate us from the desperate cries for justice emerging from our very own streets. And so the sickness uh, of arrogance, it's really what James is saying, it, 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 the problem with the sickness of arrogance is it, 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 it pollutes our, our, our understanding of the world. It's an illusion so that it, it, it separates us from reality. It's a distorted understanding of the world where we are self-sufficient and we are in control. And so the medicine for this sickness, you know, that's, that's the sickness. That's the problem. What's the solution? What's the medicine that James is going to prescribe? And it comes, I think, right in verse 14, 14 where he says, You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so the cure for this illusion is just a hard dose of reality. We aren't in control. We aren't the center of the universe. Our knowledge is incredibly limited. We are but vapor. It's getting cold in Minnesota. Pretty soon we're going to see our breath when we go outside in the morning. Well, every breath we breathe should remind us that's what our life is like. We don't matter that much. I mean, in 50 or 100 years, we're all going to be forgotten. We will be in an unvisited grave. We will be a photo in an old family album. We will be a name on a family tree. That's it. That's it. And so when we're faced with how contingent our lives are, how unimportant we are in the grand scheme of things, it's liberating. It's liberating because we can finally live from a place of humility and generosity. That, that, That we're taking nothing for granted. That every day is a gift. Every opportunity to be in relationship with someone, every chance to serve God in some small way is a gift. It's a gift of grace. And when we remove ourselves, we take ourselves out of the you know, center of, uh, of, of, of the universe. We, we, we don't say that we're the protagonist of reality. We can assume our, our rightful place as a bit player. And we can start to live for God and for other people instead of ourselves. You know, we say, he must increase, I must decrease. And we can see that wealth, whatever resources we have, aren't something to accrue for our own benefit. But they're just a tool we get to, to use to leverage, the, to make the world a little bit better of a place. And the future isn't something we make on our own. It's, 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 it's a gift that God allows us a small role in shaping. And, and we're builders of a cathedral that we will never inhabit. But we pass it on. We pass on that work to the next generation. And when we let go of that illusion of control, we can actually let go of some of that anxiety that comes when, when we try to be in control and the disappointment that comes when things don't go exactly how we hoped that they would. And we can do our best and not just trust, okay, we do our best, God does the rest. We do our best and know that, that God will do what God is going to do. And because we know that he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. And at the end of the day, I think James' message is this, and it's a paradox. And all of Christian faith, I love Chesterton, 
because all of life, all of reality, all of existence, we live in a paradox. And it's this. On the one hand, you're not that important. Not that important at all. And on the other hand, you are of infinite and immeasurable value in God's eyes. You are worth everything. You're not that important, but to God, you are of infinite worth. And we live in that paradox. We get to live like it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of not mattering that much. <laughs> but that not being a, a barrier to you caring and loving us and knowing us so deeply and intimately. And so, Lord God, might we live from a place of spiritual humility, not where we think less of ourselves, but where we think of ourselves less and where we love you and serve you more and more. And we point people to how great and good and awesome you truly are. In Jesus' precious name, amen.